0: This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number six. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, the Monday podcast focused on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. My guest today is David Putnam, who brings 28 years with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and 31 years of total law enforcement experience to his new career as an author. I met David at SleuthFest in Orlando, Florida earlier this year and was extremely impressed by his ability to explain in terms that even I could understand how things actually worked at crime scenes. I invited him onto the show to talk about The Disposables, the first book in a new series he's writing, but also to help us to understand how we as authors can educate ourselves so that we get the details right in our own crime fiction. In this interview, we'll talk about crime scenes, search warrants, fingerprints, the influence of television on readers and writers, and David even offers some specific advice on how to quickly gather
1: accurate information about the use of different guns. For me, and I didn't have that experience, I would go to a gun store, and just tell them, hey, I'm a writer, I'm writing a novel, and I, I want this to happen in the book. Not, not necessarily ask them how a gun works, but sometimes there's a specific gun for a specific purpose.
0: In this week's News That Affects Authors section, we're back once again to Amazon Hachette. But first I'd like to share a review that the show received last week from Logan Keyes, the author of a spine-tingling set of short horror stories titled Unhinged. In her review, Logan said, I've been listening to this podcast since it began, and each episode is better than the last. The bit of news at the intro keeps me informed without preaching what side to take. You know, the indie versus traditional or Amazon versus David, or, um, uh, Hachette, That's the end of her uh, review, which I, I did get a laugh out of. Thanks, Logan, and to everyone who has reviewed and rated the show on either iTunes or Stitcher. These reviews are critical in helping other listeners to find the show. Now we get back to the story that will not die. After months of breathless speculation about what Amazon really wants in their negotiations with Hachette, they finally told us through an Amazon forum post early last week. I'll summarize a bit of what they said, and you can find a link to the entire post as well as everything else we discuss in the show notes, which you can find at theauthorbiz.com/slash session six, and that's the number six. Essentially, the Amazon post, and the post was attributed not to a person but to the Amazon book team. What the post said was that nine dollar and ninety nine cent eBooks sell. 174% more copies than more expensive ebooks, and they defined more expensive ebooks in the post as $14.99 and $17.99 ebooks. They make the point that by selling more copies at a lower price, everyone makes more money. So Amazon is negotiating for lower ebook prices, not higher royalties for themselves, as many had suspected. Amazon also took a shot at Hachette. And traditional publishing in general by suggesting that publishers split the 70% royalty they receive from Amazon on digital books with the authors. I'm sure the overwhelming majority of authors who read the post would at least agree with that part. 35% is far better than what most traditionally published authors receive on ebook sales now. It's easy to take sides in this debate, and I can certainly see Amazon's point. Selling more ebooks at a lower price is intuitively obvious, and they back it up with data. But it leaves out the impact that lower priced ebooks have on print sales and the royalties authors earn on those sales. The simultaneous release of a $24.95 hardcover book that's discounted and sold at $18 with a $9.99 ebook obviously reduces hardcover sales. An author selling a $24.95 hardcover book, even at a discount, probably earns 25% of the cover price or in this case $6.24. When a price-conscious reader chooses the ebook instead of the hardcover, the author's royalty drops to 25% of what their publisher receives, which in this example would be $1.74. $6.24 for a hardcover royalty or $1.74 for an ebook royalty. As a reader, I love the idea of lower-priced ebooks, but I can understand why some authors find Amazon's position disappointing. Some bloggers have made the point that most authors don't sell a significant number of hardcover books any longer, so this impacts the top of the author pyramid at a much greater level than those below. In other news, the third quarterly author earnings report was released. This report, which is compiled by best-selling indie author Hugh Howey and the mysterious data guy, always generates a lot of discussion. The reports are taken from the 7,000 top selling digital genre titles on Amazon's category bestseller list. They're always fascinating, and this one points out three significant trends. Number one digital books sold by big five publishers have dropped to only 16% of the ebooks on Amazon's bestseller list. Number two self published books now represent 31% of ebook sales on Amazon's Kindle store. And finally, independent authors are earning nearly 40% of the ebook dollars that wind up going to authors. That's sort of stunning. 40% of the total ebook dollars that wind up going into authors' pockets. Not to be outdone in the reporting department, Smashwords released their third annual survey that examined over $25 million worth of customer purchases aggregated across Smashword retailers. There were two particularly interesting results in the survey to me. First is that there's a new sweet spot for price for digital bestsellers, and that seems to be either $2.99 or $3.99. Those books seem to be selling the most. Another thing sort of surprised me is that readers prefer longer books, specifically those over 100,000 words. It's not true in my case. I, I tend to enjoy shorter books, maybe 60,000, 70,000 words that just tell a great story. But readers in general seem to prefer those books over 100,000 words. Again, I'll have links to all of this in the show notes at theauthorbiz.com slash session six. David Putnam spent 31 years in law enforcement, working primarily in California on teams for patrol investigations swat narcotics violent crimes criminal intelligence internal affairs and the detective bureau he rounded out his law enforcement career with a few years in the hawaiian islands as a special agent and was part of the real life hawaii 50 team as you'll hear in the interview david's desire to write goes back a long way and his path to publication is a case study and perseverance I get the interview started by asking David to give us an overview of his gritty new crime thriller,
1: The Disposables. Disposables is a story about an underground railroad to rescue abused children from toxic homes. Uh, the story is about uh, an ex-cop who was on a violent crimes team in south-central Los Angeles uh, working for Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Um, and in the background, before the book starts, his... His uh, daughter dies of an overdose, and his son-in-law has custody of two twins. One of the twins is killed through abuse, and Bruno Johnson uh, chases down and kills the son-in-law. The story opens with uh, Bruno out on parole working at a liquor store uh, with that background, and Bruno tries to save other children who are in these types of homes.
0: And Bruto's a uh, pretty he's, he's an interesting character. As you mentioned, he's he's a former cop, he's been to prison, he's come out. He feels as though he's let his father down, his community down. It's almost as though he feels he has this debt to pay while he's doing something and as as readers when we begin reading, we're not entirely sure, well, we're not sure at all what's going on. The the book opens in the in the liquor store. And they're just hints at past activity that you need to keep reading to understand. And I, I felt like you did a, a fabulous job leading the reader into the story. And it, it's really the kind of thing that once you start reading, it's, it's very difficult to put the book down. And the, I'm a nighttime reader, so it's very very hard for me to put the, be- put the book down and, and get some sleep. Well, thank you. You bring a great deal of realism to the book uh, because of your background as a a police officer or a deputy with the Los Angeles Police Department.
1: Do I have that right? I was with Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. I worked South Central Los Angeles. For a number of years. Right. and I was also on a violence crime team, the same thing that Bruno was on when he was a, a, a deputy. Um, and that's what I drew my experience from. So... The people that are chasing him in the book are the people that – the team that he was actually on.
0: And I, I noticed from your website, which is dwputnam.com, that you worked in patrol, investigations, SWAT, narcotics, street level, street level and major narcotics, violent crimes, criminal intelligence – Internal affairs and the detective bureau through the course of, of your career. So, you bring a great deal of experience to writing crime fiction. Uh,
1: yeah, yes, that's true. Um, 31 years, I retired with 28 years in California, and my last three years I did with Hawaii Five O in Hawaii. Um, the, the book has actually five incidents that I was involved in that I fictionalized. So, there, it's semi true in some aspects of the book.
0: Now, it's interesting that you say that because there are – a lot of times I'll read crime fiction, and and there are things that are particularly gruesome. And as a reader, I think "Eh, that's just – no one would do that to another human being. But I get the sense from reading your book, and there are some particularly gruesome things in The Disposables, that, uh, as you said, this this comes from real life.
1: That's correct, and I don't want to give a spoiler, but um – that, that one person, uh, Ruben, a Cuban, that wasn't the name of the suspect, but he was actually doing those incidents when I was in South Central Los Angeles. Oy.
0: And uh, so you have to read the book to find out what it was, but uh, it, it's harrowing, uh, to, to put it mildly. You were a cop of, in, in a variety of roles over the course of 31 years, and I, I got the feeling—you uh, and I met at SleuthFest during the spring— and, in talking to you, I got the feeling that you had always wanted to write, and it it was something that you did in your spare time throughout your law enforcement career um Can you just give the listeners a little bit of an overview of how you how it came to be that that you you became a published writer?
1: I've always wanted to write, like you said, and I wrote a couple of novels or attempted a couple of novels while I was in high school. Um and I never finished them. And then I, I became enamored with law enforcement uh so much that that I that's all I thought about. That's all I did for a number of years. Uh, but at the same time I continued to read. I was an avid reader. I would read um four, five times five books a week sometimes. And uh when I was working in narcotics, uh probably half probably ten years into my career, I was um, Working, I was on a surveillance of a meth lab out in Lucerne Valley. Samuel County Sheriff's Department is 20,000 square miles, the county is, and it's vast desert. So I was out in the middle of the desert on a surveillance, and I always kept um, paperback novels in my back seat. People think that the, the way the surveillance go, goes on uh, television is the way it is, and it's not. Um you you can't surveil somebody with one person or one car it's impossible usually have a team of five or six even with uh air support it's difficult to maintain uh an eye on somebody um if they're into counter surveillance so one guy has the eye he's watching and he's rotated out like every four hours and the other team members are laid off um sometimes the guys will play softball they watch television. Um, it's really kind of a surveillance is kind of laid back so I got to do a lot of reading and I was down to my last paperback. I picked it up started reading it and it was just horrible and I'm not going to say who the <laughs> author was but it was a international bestseller and I was just shocked at how how badly drawn it was. So I started writing sitting in my uh, undercover car. Uh, and I wrote my first four novels longhand on legal pads while I was on surveillance.
0: When was this? When did you start writing longhand? When was the first one? What year?
1: I I couldn't type, so I I self taught myself how to type. But the first one I think, as I recall, was like 1989. Okay, and uh, it was like 22 years ago. I've uh, I wrote 40 manuscripts. I had four agents. I've had 175, 200 rejections uh, before. Uh, Disposables was uh, sold, and I think the first 24 novels or so were a learning experience, and they were not publishable, but the ones after that I think were of a publishable quality.
0: So what would you tell someone who's written a couple of manuscripts and and maybe sent some queries to agents and hasn't gotten a positive response? Would you say, gee, that's too bad, you probably should give up?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I the first, one of the very first, when I first got picked up writing again as a, as law enforcement officer, I went to a writing class with uh, Mark Clement. He's a, um, a teacher in Southern California, instructor, and he's I think he has four novels that he's actually published. And I walk in, sat down in his class, and he has a, a whiteboard. And the first thing he goes up and he writes big letters. He says, "This is one thing you have to have to be a writer." And he writes perseverance on the whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> And I kind of took that to heart and uh, continued on.
0: But, but well beyond what a, a lot of people would continue on through, because you wrote a number of manuscripts, and as you said, hundreds of rejections. Were they all form rejections, or did you eventually get some sort of more personalized rejections?
1: No. Um, uh, toward uh, my fourth agent, uh, he marketed 12 of my novels in New York, to, and he, he sent them to all the the big six. Now it's the big five, and now I was getting sometimes two page rejections. I made it to acquisitions twice before I got knocked out. Um, and to, to answer that other question about um, advice for a, a reader, I just recently heard something, and it was very it hit me very profoundly. And uh, I was in New York for Thriller Fest, and I had lunch with um, uh, Neil Niven. Senior editor at Putnam, and I, he, he he edited a many many books. I sat down in his office, and there's a wall of books that he looks straight onto from his desk. So, so, they were behind me, but the whole wall of books were I, I, I read I'd read ninety percent of these books, hmm. and he is the editor for these books, John Sanford, Robert Kraus. I mean, they're just some fantastic books. Um, and I, so I asked him. I said, uh, "Do you write?" And he, and he he was he kind of. Um, He kind of of hesitated, and he said, I could could write, and I would like to write, but he said that uh, he would be adequate as a writer, and he said that if you want to, he said, books come across my desk, and I see a, a lot of books, and a lot of these books are publishable. They are good books, but they don't rise above the good books. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for something that rises above everything else, instead of being adequate. That's what he said. That's that. So I think that for years I was writing an adequate book, uh, publishable, and I thought they were publishable, but they didn't rise above until I found the voice in Bruno Johnson. I think that's what uh, broke me out.
0: Yeah, I have to say I've I've not read it, it, your book. Didn't remind me of anything which is is really rare, because I, I read a lot, just like you You probably still do read a lot. And, you know, you, you'll start reading a book and you'll say, oh, well, this is sort of like so-and-so's work, or it's sort of like this book. And you wonder where the author is going to take the story to make it unique. But, uh, you know, from the start of your story on, I I, I wasn't flashing back on anything else. So I, I completely get what you mean, and that's a great point. Well, let's let's take a turn for the more detailed now. Because of your background, I'd like to spend some time talking about getting the details of crime fiction right. And it's something that you obviously are able to fall back on your own experience to do with your work, but you've obviously read a lot of crime fiction. Let's start off by how to maybe how to not do things wrong. What kind of things have you read in the past, that you and other officers that you've worked with, where you just kind of shake your head and say, "Man, they got that wrong."
1: Well, uh, procedure mostly where they they cut corners, or if it's something simple, most of the time uh, I'll put a book down if something very simple. But something convoluted, I can understand how they they messed it up. Um, but if it's something very basic that they they mess up, I'm not going to read the book because <clears throat> excuse me, the author did not put it put the time in to do the research um and i don't know i don't think it's fair because i write from something that i i know and what was absolutely submersed in for 31 years so it came easy to me to write about law enforcement guns tactics uh guns uh, uh, ballistics uh one thing that um it kind of irks me that, that when they get them wrong like having a, a safety on a glock or a safety on a revolver uh, that, that kind of thing It uh, instantly turns me off in a book. Um, The way you get a search warrant, that kind of thing, uh, definitely turns me off and I'll I'll put the book down.
0: All right. Now, you mentioned you're turned off because the author didn't put the time in to do the research. How should those of us who don't have 31 years of experience on on a police force, how should we do the research? How, How do you recommend that people research things like guns and tactics and search warrant procedures?
1: Uh, well, uh, I'm sure there's a, there's a multitude of ways to do research, but if I were writing this genre and I, and I had not had the experience, um, I would seek out uh, a law enforcement officer and ask him to read some pages and uh, get his opinion on it and, and uh, ask him if this, this would work and if it doesn't work. I have a number of, of mystery writers, I mean quite a few mystery writers that send me questions all the time. Sometimes I even read the whole manuscript and um i 'll make comments on them uh, and send it back to them
0: when I was at sleuthfest you you were on a panel something to almost like what we 're talking about today, getting the details right in crime fiction and one of the things that came up on that panel was the idea of something called a citizen police force or a police academy or something where you could you could show up at your local police department or or make arrangements to show up and actually do ride-alongs and and sort of see behind the scenes of things. Is that something that you've had any experience with?
1: I was actually a uh, supervisor at one station, a sergeant, and I was in charge of Citizens on Patrol. And I think it's a great program because the community comes in and actually sees what we do. And the Citizens on Patrol program in California, uh, which I can only speak from, is... um, anybody, usually an elderly retired person, uh, mostly, but that's not exclusive, Uh, they come in, apply, and they actually go to um, a small academy. And it's just classroom, just informing them how the processes that, uh, what they should do and what they shouldn't do, how the radio works, and that kind of thing. And then the cars are donated, and they're painted like sheriff's cars, and they actually drive around on patrol calling things out. So they're not allowed to interact with an incident, but they stay back and they call in the patrol units. Uh, they also are active in uh, traffic control when we have an incident. Uh, they help out with all, all, a, very, a variety of uh, things. So they actually get to interact with the, with the police officers. And if a, if a rider wanted to do that, it would be a great place to learn how things work. They could ask questions, um, uh, become friends with the cops. And learn a lot.
0: Uh, Do most police departments or sheriff's departments offer this kind of training?
1: Because it's such a great public relations tool, um, almost all of the ones I'm aware of in California, they do offer this.
0: Okay. And I I know in Collier County, because I've researched it a little bit, I live in Florida in Collier County, Florida, and uh, they do offer a similar thing here. It's a little bit difficult to get in, but they do offer it. And it, it sounds like another benefit, in addition to just being able to ask questions while you're there, is that you can form a relationship with a working police officer with whom you could ask questions of
1: later. Yes, and that would be ideal. I would take it one step further. I would find somebody who is an aspiring writer or someone who is a published writer who is law enforcement, because sometimes there are shortcuts um, that you can make uh, that work a lot better. There are things that are accepted in the in the in mystery writing. If you put it in, if you put an exact procedure in the book, it might be uh, mundane and bland, and the uh, mystery writer can tell you how to shortcut that.
0: What about guns? You mentioned guns. Are there specific resources that an author could use, say, uh, you know, Guns for Dummies or something like that, uh, that an author could use to understand how a Particular gun would work.
1: Um, that, and that's another thing the um, which which is just wrong a lot of times in the books. And for me, and I didn't have that experience, I would go to a gun store and just tell them, "Hey, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm writing a novel, and I, I want this to happen in the book." Not not necessarily ask them how a gun works, but sometimes there's a specific gun for a specific purpose. Sometimes it's good to have the wrong gun in in the story because it adds more conflict. But a gun store, uh, a guy behind the counter is going to be more than happy to explain how a magazine works. One, One thing that is wrong all the time is a clip. There's no such thing as a clip. But because it's used so often in Hollywood and in books, it's become I, uh, <laughs> natural for people to call it a clip. There, There's only one gun that has a clip and that is the M1 Grand and that's what started this clip thing um, in World War II. It has an interior magazine and the bullets are on a clip and you stick the whole clip into the interior magazine and then as you shoot the last round, the clip flips out and you put another clip in. So all these people in World War II came back and they were talking about loading their gun with the clips. Uh, handguns And rifles have a magazine, an exterior magazine that inserts in the gun. So they're magazines and not clips.
0: (laughs) I have to say, I I read about clips all the time. (laughs) How much of a role do you think television plays in establishing incorrect norms in, in our minds?
1: Well, CSI for one causes us a lot of heartache because we go to a burglary and and and, and it's and it's a burglary that people that have never had any uh, experience with with crime is a big incident to them. But because they're, the burglaries are one of the more often crimes that we investigate, there's a whole lot of them. So we can't invest the resources like on CSI, and some of those things on CSI don't even, aren't even real. Um, so they'll, they'll say, well, aren't you going to bring five or six guys in here and, and, and super glue the house? No, we're not, we're not going to do it. We can't do that. And then they actually get mad at us because we're not giving them good service.
0: I read things all the time, and I have no idea whether this is accurate or not, so I will just ask you uh, where a crime happens in a hotel room for example, and they bring in the CSI team and they take like 18,000 fingerprints and, you know, 1,400 uh, DNA samples. And then, you know, a week or so later, they've got it narrowed down to these three
1: suspects. <laughs> well, when I first started, there, was, there wasn't a fingerprint system. You would have to have a comparison subject. So you'd pull a fingerprint and it did nothing for you until you had a suspect that you could fingerprint him and do what's called elimination check on it. You eliminate him as a suspect or um, make him as a suspect. Uh, one of the big things on television that is absolutely wrong, uh, on, but, it's, but it's great for drama, is all these people standing in a crime scene. First thing, um, when I get to a crime scene, I'm going to tape it off, and absolutely no one goes in that crime scene. Um, you, you set somebody, uh, if I assign an officer to stand uh, at the entrance and he has a clipboard and he has to log in everybody's name that goes in the crime scene. And you can bet that the defense is going to, once you catch the guy, is going to bring in everybody on that, cl- on that uh, clipboard to testify. So you limit it because the more tainted uh, your crime scene, the less chance you have of conviction in court. Um and it's right in policy that, that that is that we operate that way. However, there are exceptions. Like one time, I was uh, working patrol, and I had a murder. This woman was uh, was killed and t- tied up and killed, and it eventually being it ended up being the gardener that she hired for temporary service. And I found out twenty years later he goes captured twenty years later. Anyway, I steal a, a place off and call homicide. Have dispatch call homicide, and the captain and the deputy chief show up. And they want to go in and look, and I, he said, we want to go in and look, and I said, well, we're not supposed to do that, and I go, yeah, yeah, and they just walk on by me and go into the crime scene. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to stop my own captain. So uh, homicide gets there. The <laughs> sergeant pulls me aside, and he just chews me out. What are you thinking? You should have stopped the chief and the captain from coming in, and you know he's right, but he's also wrong.
0: How often does something like that happen? Because in on television and in crime fiction, you read all the time where the D.A. is is called out immediately after the crime, and they're traipsing around the crime scene. Is that something that that ever really happens?
1: Well, I can only talk from California experience, but the D.A.s, the DAs do not roll out except for one instance, and that is uh, officer-involved shootings. They call them OISs. Um, <clears throat> And they come out because they they want an independent investigation. Somebody that will give credibility to because if you invest your, investigate your own officer involved shooting, there's people going to question like, oh yeah, that that wasn't done. Uh, you know that didn't happen that way. They, they covered that up. So there's a DA rollout team that and the have, DA has their own investigators. So they send out their investigators and usually a DA um, to make sure that everything is is above board and credible.
0: Okay, all right. Let's let's go back to fingerprints, because okay. on television, uh, someone takes a fingerprint, and it's immediately shot through every crime database in the world, and they, and they get a quick response. How realistic is that?
1: Well, first off, on television, fingerprints they fingerprints are very delicate. They are. Um, like 80 percent water 20 or 10 percent oil from your hair on your on your um, fingers and and the small part is is dust or or dirt Uh, and because they are are so um, high high in in water they they disappear very quickly you can't get a fingerprint uh, days old it's more difficult the longer it 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 goes Uh, and and on television, you see these people pick up these items and just drop them in a bag, and they just hold the bag uh, in their hand. Well, you're gonna you're gonna mess up the fingerprint by holding the item inside the plastic bag. Just because it's in a bag does not mean that it's secure. Um, and, and you see them; they, they have these bags. They pull these bags out. They drop an item in, and they just hold it in their hand, like, okay, now it's safe. And they could touch it. You can't. You have to help. It's like a very delicate porcelain doll. Is where you got to treat that plastic bag because any bumping or movement on that fingerprint is going to mar it. Um, so then you pull the fingerprint off, and you can take it and and uh, send it to CalID, which is a, a database, and it, it can come back to you within within an hour probably. Um, that is possible.
0: But that's a single database, or does it also go through other databases?
1: You know, well, you have to specifically request the additional databases. Um, when I was – I've been retired now three years. But just before I retired, they actually had a fingerprint reader out in the field because when you're working patrol, the, the biggest problem is identifying people. We, I, I call playing the name game. You ask them what their name is, and then you interview them and talk to them, and you trip them up on their name, where they came from, and then you realize that they're lying to you. So it was all a, a process that you had to become really good at, otherwise you weren't catching your crooks. But now they have this little device where you stick your thumb on it, and it would um, send it right to the um, – it would uh, telephonically email it. I'm not sure of the process, and come right back with the guy's name. So there, that was a wow. major advance from the time that I started law enforcement to the time I ended it. That was like Star Wars kind of thing.
0: It sounds like it. How much time does it actually take? Um, let, let's say there's a murder scene or something, um, you know, out in the field, say uh, a, a body in the field or some some area that has to be secured. What's the process for securing securing it, uh, getting the the appropriate people in to decide what to do, all the way through to the end where. You know they're done is it a few hours is is it a day how How much time does that actually take
1: well that's that that would vary based on on the crime scene what kind of crime scene you have where the location of the crime scene but usually my experience is uh nothing sooner than say eight to ten hours at a minimum and usually I've been on crime scenes where I left I was there for ten hours I went home slept came back. Uh, Got suited up, went back out, and it was still going on twenty four hours later. So there's a a, a very it it depends on how extensive the crime scene is, the location, if it's uh, difficult access, uh, that kind of thing.
0: What's the largest crowd you've ever seen at a crime scene?
1: Oh, uh, when I was working South Central Los Angeles, three hundred people. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. And and when you when I was working South Central at Linwood Station. You would field uh, two two-man cars in Willowbrook, one two-man car in, in uh, East Compton, and three cars in Linwood. So you'd have 400 people, and you'd have uh, eight deputies to, to maintain it. And that's with everybody else, all the other calls for service being put aside. That- another, a- another thing that, that is is different is in, in, in homicide, there's two things that is not uh, portrayed correctly. When, when you go to a crime scene, say there's a murder in a house. Uh, everyone that i have worked you you don't even start searching until you get a search warrant for the house if there's a dead body in the house you get called there you have a legal right to be there to search uh, visually around the body but if you want to keep something inside within the law um so say uh like 80 percent of uh, spousal murders are as a spouse so you get to the house there's a there's a there's a dead body you need to stop what you're doing and write a search warrant and get it approved by a judge to search that house and then you don't see that on television or, or in books very often because it's too mundane it's not it's not dramatic enough and and it's an automatic search warrant because there's a dead Biden house. so the judge naturally going to give you approval but it's just one of those things that you do a layer um, to make sure that you're doing a procedurally the right thing the other thing is uh, miranda when people on television, they give the Miranda decision, and you can't. There's, there's a very delicate dance that you do when you're talking to people, and you cannot do anything coercive in an interview, like um, what's said all the time on television or in books. Is that uh, you're looking at life? You're going to get life, and you're going to be in prison with all these other, these bad people. You say that, and he, that turns into a coercive a coercive coercive interview, and it's going to whole things gonna get thrown out, but. It's not dramatic enough if you just play the normal word game like you're supposed to uh, uh, in real life. So it doesn't work. The other thing is a non-custodial interview. Uh, Because a branded decision has been ruled on so many times that it's loosened up a lot from when it first came out. Um, When a homicide goes down, they uh, will put out a person of interest. And so they'll tell patrol, I want to talk to this guy. Stop him. So we'll go out, look for the guy, stop him, call homicide, handcuff him, put him back, seat of the car. Homicide comes out, takes the guy out of the car, takes the handcuffs off, apologizes to him, says that, that the patrol guys are crazy, they they don't know what they're doing, we're real sorry about this. Would you mind coming back to the station and uh, talking to us? This is called a non-custodial interview. Mm-hmm. The guy drives in his own car back to headquarters, they take him into an interview room, they leave the door open, which is part of the uh, ruling. You give them coffee. You tell them right on tape, you know, you're free to go anytime. We just want to talk to you. Get this, get this straightened out. They never Mirandize him. They do not give him his Miranda rights because it's a non-custodial situation. So as soon as he starts talking and they break him down and he, he cups out to it, then it's all, it's all valid without a, Miranda, without a Miranda admonition.
0: That's fascinating. I'd never heard that before.
1: Yeah, it's done quite often now, and I think they keep it close to the vest because uh, the crooks hear about it, and it gets it gets ruined. Uh, and I probably shouldn't have said that about it. Just like um, cell phones, we used to track people all the time on cell phones, but then the discovery with the defense attorneys, the crooks heard about it, and now it's uh, it's more difficult to track them.
0: The murder in the house situation that you mentioned a, a little while ago and getting a, uh, a search warrant, uh-huh. how long does that actually take?
1: Well there again it's it varies on on how, the time of day where you are the location, but that kind of search warrant that's probably a, a three paragraph affidavit um and there's an affidavit and there's a search warrant and you need both of them the uh, affidavit is just the probable cause um to search, and then the search warrant is just a description of uh the items that you're gonna to seize looking for and a description of location so those three things. The, the three paragraphs and the search warrant, very easy to write, very quick to write. Sometimes if it's if it's a stretch, it takes a little bit of creative writing uh, to make it work. But a slam dunk homicide like that, you would go back and um, fax it to the – or actually email it now sometimes. Uh, or telephonic. It used to be telephonic. When I, when I was still working, you'd, you'd call a judge, and he would tape record the um, – your, your affidavit over the okay, phone, okay. Okay, and then he would say, "Go ahead and affix my signature to the search warrant." So you'd call him. You're standing out in the field. You write it up. Uh, he says, "Go ahead. You sign his name to the search warrant." And so, the, so it's oh, probably within an hour if you wanted.
0: Okay, so in the case of uh, an urgent situation, it can be done very quickly, and and for the most part. Electronically, it's not like you need to go back to the station, write something up, get it approved, send it up the line until it gets to the judge and works its way back.
1: Right. Um, and, and in television shows, you'll see um, the detective say, uh, "I need to get," uh, or the supervisor will say, "I'll get a search warrant. You go on out there." <laughs> That's not the way it works at all, because the, the supervisor doesn't have the information. Uh, for the for the search warrant to write the affidavit. And you have to put your affiance, uh, the affiant, which is the person writing the search warrants, expertise and experience, the guy who's going to swear to it. So the supervisor is not going to swear to the affidavit because he's going to be pulled into court. So that is another big myth uh, in, in television.
0: How much um, how much of our information as writers do you think we absorb from television as fact?
1: Oh, I think a lot of writers get a lot of their information and ideas from um, television. And there are a lot of great um, uh, writers who are writing for television nowadays. Mm -hmm. I think think, um, television is is far surpassing the uh, uh, movies. The big screen is all about special effects. And now you see some actually great uh, stories. Like Luther is one of them, is one of the best crime shows I've seen in many years on television.
0: Any others that you can particularly recommend? Oh, well, accuracy.
1: Uh, L- Luther is is set in London, so I, I can't really uh, test the accuracy on that. Mm-hmm. But the, the killing is is a great for for, for writing. Um, I, the Wire was a great show. I don't know. That, that, I love The Wire. That was that was pretty accurate mm-hmm. in, in most things. But uh, yeah, those are the, those are the best ones, I think.
0: Any particular writers that you could give a shout out that that really do? Justice to the accuracy of dealing with crime scenes and evidence and things like that.
1: I think uh, Michael Conley was one of the better ones because he was a crime writer for L.A. Times, and he um, always thanks uh, one particular officer, LAPD officer, in his book and uh, you know in the um, acknowledgments. And I think that he does a lot to keep his books accurate. Yep. I, I never. I never have a problem reading his books.
0: <laughs> I think most people most people <laughs> would agree, and um, I'm assuming that everyone listening to this podcast would know who Michael Conley is. Uh, I am astonished that you were able to get a blurb as a first time published author. You were able to get a blurb from Michael Conley for your book.
1: Yeah, um, I've been going. Well, once I started writing, I've been attending conferences for 22 years: writers' conferences, Bouchercon, Left Coast Crime. Uh, my wife and I have been attending all these conferences, and I would run into Michael Connolly again and again. So when the publisher picked up the book and we had a conference call, she said, um, do you know Michael Connolly? And I said, well, I know Michael Conley, but I don't know if he knows me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we had a picture taken at Book with my, my wife and I standing next to Michael Connolly at a book signing. And this was back before digital, so it was a while back. And um, we had it uh, developed. And then the next time we went to a book signing, we had him actually sign a photograph. Uh, the publisher we, we sent, emailed the publisher this photograph, and she saw him at Thrillerfest last year, mm-hmm. and went up to him and said, you, uh, "Show him a picture." And the first thing he says was, "Ooh, that's an old picture." <laughs> <laughs> and um, she told him my bio, and, I, and he said that he remembered me, and he said, "Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll read it." And I, I didn't, you know, just because he said he was going to read it, he's a busy man. I mean, really busy. I didn't expect that he was going to uh, read it. And then one morning I got a personal email. I got up and checked my email. I got a personal email from Michael Conley saying how, that he stayed up all night reading, that he absolutely loved it. And that was, it was really a, a momentous day for me.
0: Wow. Yeah, I, I would say. <laughs> I assume you still have a copy of that email.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, I got it.
0: <laughs> now you were
1: also blurbed by
0: T. Jefferson Parker, right? Same and kind of story where you just met
1: him at the at conferences, and no, actually, my, my well, You met my wife. She yes, Mary. She's, she's very tenacious at marketing, mm-hmm. and I tell people when they ask that question, I said, "Well, she stalked T. Jefferson Parker to get the blurb." <laughs> 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 she went, she went out looking for him, but um, she actually contacted him on Facebook and was going back and forth. Um, I met him at the Crime Writers Conference in Pasadena, and I talked to him for a little while. So she had a, a personal end we, when she talked to him on uh, Facebook. We were the people that talked to you, and he was writing a book. His next book is deals with avocados, and I'm an avocado grower. We have 1,100 trees, mm-hmm. and uh, he lives about nine miles from us, actually, and he was writing this book on avocados. So I told him about a particular law That pertains strictly to avocados, and he was unaware of it. So she also used that as an end. Emailed him, and he says, "Sure, I'll uh, I'll I'll read his manuscript." So he was so nice that as soon as he said that, I went down and I I I mailed him a hard copy right away, and he he gave us a nice blurb too, and I was kind of stunned about that because he is a great writer. One of the
0: things that surprised me when I started going to conferences, and you know, obviously you've been doing this for years, is how nice all of these big-name authors are. And I, I won't say all, but the overwhelming majority of them are nice, welcoming, happy-to-help kind of people, and it, it, it astonishes
1: me. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think part of that, is, for me, is that I put them up on a pedestal and kind of like, oh, yes. man, guys. And you, you think that they're going to be snobby. And, and, and that, I think that's my, my, my uh, uh, idea before I even walk up. And then you walk up and my wife says that I get tongue-tied. I don't say anything around <laughs> it because I'm so astounded or stunned by it. But you're right. Every one of them, almost, almost all of them are just very nice people.
0: So we're going to have people listening here who maybe have never been to a, a writer's conference. And you've been going for 22 years. I have seen you in action at writer's conferences, and you're really good. Are you a naturally outgoing person, or is this just something that you build up to uh, before you go to the conference?
1: No. In fact, I, I absolutely hate talking public i do not like public speaking at all and it's very difficult for me to get up there and do that and but now that i started talking on panels it gets easier and easier and i think the reason that it gets easier for me is because once i start talking about something that i'm familiar with and i don't i'm not worried about it then it it becomes easier for me and once i start telling war stories then i'm i just totally zone out i'm not even i'm not even uh, we are the public out there.
0: <laughs> you told at, at the panel. I saw you on at least one panel, maybe two. But in each case, you just sort of stood out with your sense of humor and the the war stories that you told with a humorous touch. Um, you you had the audience in the palm of your hand, and it w- it was as though you'd had some fairly intensive training in in doing this kind of thing. I'm gathering that you haven't.
1: No, none at all. No. And so I, you just kind
0: of have to suck it up and and uh, deal with the nerves and and go do it,
1: right? And like I said, I get more and more comfortable. I I just did a talk last night at a library, and that I, I was the most comfortable I, I, I'd been.
0: What are the benefits that you get from going to writers' conferences? Going back twenty two years, when you're you were thinking about the uh, you know you were writing, but you know the the dream of publication was still a ways off.
1: I, I learned something at every conference um, by talking to authors mostly uh, and, and fellow writers. Um, they're doing the same thing you're doing and there's, there's, there's so many things that you can learn in writing that you, you can't pick them all up. So if you hang out with people that are doing the same thing, it's going to rub off on you. Um, and I think that was a, and networking. Networking is very big in the publishing industry. You need to know people and um, what people are doing, what people are writing. Uh, who's doing what and where? I think it's very critical to to uh, getting published.
0: And it's amazing how how often you will remember someone that you meet if 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 the meeting is beyond just a "hi, how are you" and a handshake kind of thing. So yeah. uh, y- you may reach out to the person two or three years in the future and say, "Oh, sure, I remember you." Yeah.
1: Right. 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 And I, I'm I'm kind of tall and big and I, I'm. Uh, people remember me just because I say, "Yeah, I'm the tall guy." <laughs> I go, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does your
0: wife go with you to all the conferences?
1: Yeah, she goes. She, she's been going for 20 years with, with, with me.
0: <laughs> Well, I enjoyed, and she doesn't just go to the the same panels that you do she, that you go to. She goes off on her own, and she's learning things, presumably to help promote your career.
1: And and that's exactly right. She takes notes, and we uh, meet later and 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 uh, tell each other what we learned. She's a writer as well. She's writing – she's written a number of things. Okay. All right. And she's sort of a technical person as well, right? She has a degree in physics from Harvey Mudd, uh, but she is a computer person. But she doesn't like writing code anymore, so she is now director of training at her company.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. Now, I see, I'm intimidated. I would not have spoken with her at the conference if I'd known she had a physics degree.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I tell everybody she's a rocket scientist and she doesn't like it.
0: (laughs) What kind of things have you learned from conferences that that you've been able to to put into practice, whether from a marketing or a craft or a business perspective, that that you've found particularly helpful?
1: Well, I don't think I would have been published had I not been going to conferences. I, I, I met my agent at a uh, left-coast crime. Uh, yeah, networking is everything.
0: Now, let me, at, let me stop you there and, and ask you this. Was this one of these kind of things where it was a go spend five minutes with the agent thing where you register in advance, or did you just meet him around the pool?
1: <laughs> no. Um, what happened was, uh, I can't think, oh, Daryl Wimberly. I met an author named Daryl Wimberly, great writer. Um, he writes literary and crime fiction, and he did what I, I suggested earlier. He contacted me at a conference. We met at a conference, um, not this particular one, but another one, and he was using me as a sounding board. Uh, he would he'd email me or write me or call me and say, will this work, and, and why won't this work, and how can I make it work? And I would tell him. In fact, in fact, one time he was writing this this uh, bomb. He, he was going to set this bomb off at, I think – uh, a school and have a, and have a secondary explosion for the second, for the first responders. And so he, I was talking to him on the phone. I, I couldn't, I was describing it to him, but he wasn't getting it. So I drew a diagram and I faxed it to him. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was uh, the school fax. And somebody pulled out the fax. They thought <laughs> somebody was going to bomb school. This was before nine 11. So it oh wasn't as gosh. big a thing, but uh, it was kind of comical uh. anyway. So, um, and if you get a chance, pick up his books, he – I had a book published by this – I had four agents. Two were great and two were not good at all. you got to be careful on, on the agents because there are, there are some shysters out there. And this one agent guided me toward Publish America, which was a mistake. And uh, I published a book called Missing Fingers. So Gerald um, Wimbley's is on a panel. And it was in New Mexico. I think it was Left Coast Crime. And I went to his panel and listened to him talk. And I didn't know he was going to do this. But he said, if you really want to read a good book, and he holds up missing fingers, he goes, you don't want to miss this book. This is a great book. <laughs> so uh, I'm sitting in the audience when he did that. And um, after, that, after that panel, three agents came up and handed me their business cards. Wow. And that, that one, one agent, the one that I have now, I've had him for six years, and I will not give him up for anything because he is just an outstanding agent.
0: Okay, so you've had you've been through the process with agents. What would, how would you recommend that people evaluate agents?
1: The very best way is to talk to people that they represent. And I would not get an agent unless I talk to somebody. So if an agent says, "Yeah, I'll represent you," I would I would ask them, say, "Can you give me some uh, references I can call?" Or you just do your own research. You can usually find out um, who, and then and go to a conference and talk to them. Ask them.
0: Would you think that most authors, when an agent, most unpublished authors or, or people that are querying agents who heard from an agent and who, who said, yeah, I'll represent you, the human nature would be to say, thank God, someone wants to represent me and not do any due diligence. But it, it sounds like from what you're saying, that's not the way to go.
1: Well, if it's one of the big um, agents that that you know of. Then your your odds are you're going to be fine. But my one of those two agents that I had was a multi million dollar represented some big agents, big big authors, and that that agent turned out to be one of the worst ones, and I I would never recommend that person again.
0: And why do you think why do you think it was? It's just not a
1: good fit for you, or it was without well, the person was not honest. Okay, and kind of um, slimy. <laughs> and, and the person did not give me updates and I, and said that they sent the book out to this, 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 and this publisher. And I said, well, sh- what were the rejections? Show me the rejections. Nothing. So I don't believe that agent actually did anything. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And you're right. You do, you do hear stories like that. Um, fortunately, most of the time, after you hear the stories, then someone has the the positive story after that, where I, I got rid of this guy, and I found this other agent, and I, I love her. Right. David, what's what's next? The Disposables is out. What are you working on now?
1: The uh, publisher accepted uh, this, the book two, which is a, a book two of Bruno series. It's called The Replacements, and it comes out February 2nd. I have finished the third book called The Squandered which um, my agent is now reading, so that one should probably be out a year from February. And I've started the fourth book, which is called The Forgotten. So
0: you're not wasting any time?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. no, I've been waiting 22 years. (laughs) Are these all Bruno Johnson books? They're all Bruno Johnson books.
0: Oh, great. You've you've created a character that you love, and uh, your readers are going to love him as well. I hope so. So what's the best way for people to stay up with what David Putnam is doing?
1: Oh my my website davidputnambooks.com um my wife is like you said a computer nerd and she keeps that updated on on events that I'm attending or the books that are coming out or or um interviews that kind of thing.
0: I will put that in the show notes. Uh how about Twitter? You mentioned Twitter. You're on Twitter?
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter.
0: So what is it? what's your what's your I know what it is, but I I want to see if you know without asking Mary.
1: Oh, that's good. Um I I think it's uh Dave Putnam, isn't it? You got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you're on Facebook as well, at uh, David Putnam Books on Facebook. David, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and I want to publicly thank you. I have been one of those people who have reached out to you to ask questions about getting the details right in books, and you were very gracious with me and offered to read the manuscript, which is still not ready. But I, I really appreciate your help, and, and so when, when David says something like, uh, you know, I do, I do help people like this, he, he does, and I'm, I'm proof of that. So thank you very much for your time today. I really enjoyed your book, The Disposables, and I wish you all the best. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, including past episodes, you can visit the website at www.theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions for the show, you can leave them at the site or you can ping me on Twitter. I'm at Steve Campbell FL. Please join us again next week for another informative episode.